But Father, in these moments that we have together, centered around Your Word collectively, I pray that You would, in Your own gracious and merciful disposition toward us, stoop low, take human words, sanctify them by Your Spirit, and make them Your very own. We would see Jesus tonight. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to be working tonight from Psalm 30, uh, and I think that's in your, it's, it is, we just read it responsively together, I'm going to open my Bible as well, Psalm 30, in our world we tend to live with hard and fast lines that separate life and death, death occurs in our world when the body stops. No heartbeat, no brain waves, etc. And the issue really is complicated by the fact that with the help of modern medical machinery, we can keep bodies alive for some time. And we do so even when the person is, technically speaking, at least in our minds, not dead but alive. Now the Bible, though, works with a more fluid conception of life and death, or at least understands a more opaque Line that separates the realm of the living from the realm of the dead. To be alive in the biblical sense is not merely a medical fact that's attendant to the body. To be alive is to be fully human. And in the orbit of the Psalms, to be alive is to be able to praise. But the converse is true as well. With our medical devices, we can allow bodies to live when in fact we know that the person is better described as dead than alive. And the Bible operates in a similar vein. Living people who can think, who can emote, who can sense the world around them, living people can be described in the Bible as dead, even though they are alive. The Requiem Masses that maybe you all are familiar with often sing more often than not something like, Though dead, yet now they are alive. And the psalmist can actually say the reverse. Though living, yet now they are dead. Our psalm tonight, Psalm 30, is a psalm that begins with this biblical frame of reference in this continuum between life and death. The psalmist had experienced the realm of the dead. You see in chapter 30, Psalm 30, verses 1 to 3, if your bulletin open here, here are the ways in which the psalmist describes his situation. You lifted me. You did not let my enemies gloat over me. You healed me. And then he ups the ante in the last couple of verses here at the beginning, and he says, You brought me from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down and remaining in the pit, which is another word for the grave. All of these terms are the strongest of expressions regarding the difficulty that the psalmist had encountered. So what was the presenting cause of the psalmist's deep distress, a distress so central and poignant that he could describe it as a living death? Was it a sickness? Was it a disease? The psalmist actually says, you healed me. Now, I think it could refer to sickness and disease. And this is the point of context. It's one of the reasons why I, more often than not, not always, but more often than not, I love our lectionary readings. They make associative connections between Bible verses that can be quite poignant. 
reading Psalm 30 in chorus with our Mark reading tonight makes for a really pregnant associative reading. The woman with a long-term hemorrhage touches Jesus' cloak and in an act of faith, she's healed and she's delivered. I love that story. The woman's marked by such humility. She's marked by meekness. She's marked by, by faith. And here's Jairus' daughter. She dies, presumably of some physical illness. And Jesus raises her too from, from the pit. So these two stories together illustrate the close proximity death has to the realm of the living. The hemorrhaging woman exists in a living death while Jairus' daughter has passed into dying death. Both are, biblically speaking, in Psalm 30, verses 1-3, through both are existing in the realm of death. And Jesus heals every one of them. Jesus brings each one of them from the realm of the dead from the pit, from Sheol, and places their feet on solid ground in the realm of the living, in the land of human flourishing, back into the place of praise. You know, this co-mingling of life and death um, hit me this week, actually. I was a week, um, I, I, I coached Little League Baseball this year, and nine and ten-year-olds down at Southside in Avondale, um, and I'm, I, I'm having withdrawals, to be honest with you, it's over now. Um, something about perpetuating one's youth when you're around baseball. And uh, we had our team party this Thursday night. So what was going on in my mind was cupcakes, railroad park, wiffle ball, getting baseballs to sign for the kids, that kind of thing was going on. And I'm driving. I like to get my tickets before Barron's games. I like to get them early. I don't want to wait in line at the game. So I'm driving down 18th, heading toward uh, Regents Park to get my tickets. And I passed down 18th Street. Going down, I saw... UAB Hospital on my left. Now, I'm sure those of you who traffic downtown see this all the time. I do too. But there for me, sitting at the red light, getting ready to go get my ballpark tickets, I looked out to my left, and there were patients sitting on the side of the road on their park bench in hospital garb in their IV mobiles. One fellow had a washcloth on his forehead to keep him cool. I'd seen the scene before. But it arrested me for a moment. And then the light turned green and I'm off to my happy place. See, the hemorrhaging woman understands long-term health concerns. I have a friend, a dear friend, battling pancreatic cancer. And the battle demands almost all of his living energies. He understands. Frankly, as of now, I don't really understand, at least on the experiential level. But as God's grace would have it for the hemorrhaging woman... And for the psalmist and for my friend, Jesus understands. He moves towards them. He heals them. He lifts them up from the pit. He takes them from the realm of Sheol, the netherworld of the dead. And He brings them back to the land of the living, back to the place place of praise. You see what Psalm 30 and Mark 5 witness to in a loud, resounding way, is they witness to the character of our God. God takes things that are that seem to us dead and beyond repair, and He makes them alive again. God, who raised Israel from the dead in Egypt, and He raised Jesus from the dead in Jerusalem, is the one who makes dead things alive again. That's His character. That's how we know who our God is. And here Jesus is in Mark 5, speaking His powerful 
and creative word. And a dead girl is eating falafel with pita by the end of the night. Right? It's incredible. Back to Psalm 30. I cry to you, the psalmist said, in verse 3, or verse 2, and you healed me. A Mark reading highlights this character of physical healing from sickness, and rightly so. But it's not the full extent of the psalmist's reach. The healing I've spoken here can refer to any healing where what was broken is built up again. Or what was fractured is now made whole again. A broken marriage that gets healed. A bankrupt business at the last minute that finds a final solution. Wandering and lost children who come home. Six months on the 12-step program and not a drop. You healed me. You are healing me. I was drowning and you gave me life. I was flailing in the deep end of the pool and you threw me a lifeline. And now I'm standing outside the pool dripping wet from the experience of my deadly ordeal, my trip down to living Sheol, and I only have one response. I have to praise. <laughs> I have to sing. Look at verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints. Give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment. But his favors for a lifetime. Weeping endures for the evening, but in the morning, when the sun comes up, there's joy. Two commands, two imperatives. Sing and praise. What else can we do in the face of the delivering grace of God? What can a woman with a lifelong illness do in response other than praise? Or the parents of a dead daughter, what can they do but praise. You know, these life circumstances that we're talking about here are not the difficult but ready-made circumstances we encounter most of the days of our lives, where with maybe good people skills or problem-solving skills or wisdom, we can deliver ourselves. No, these are living death situations, drowning situations, where deliverance only comes in the form of salvation extended to us a lifeline that's thrown to us when our arms are flailing. So when you and when I stand outside the pool and we're still dripping wet, the only proper response is thanksgiving and gratitude extended to the one who saved us, to the one who rescued us. You know who's a great example of this in the Bible? It's one of my favorite stories of all time. I love it to this day. It's Jonah, right? Now, I... I don't know if any of you have read uh, any of Anne Rice's novels, not not the softcore porn stuff or the um, or the uh, the vampire stuff, but her Jesus novels. If you read the other ones, you know, it's fine. Um, but but she wrote two Jesus novels, and there's a scene, and I think it's the first one, maybe Road to Cana or something like that. And there's a scene of Joseph, Jesus's father, reading a story to his children around the around a campfire or telling them a story, and the children are belly laughing. I mean, rolling around on the ground, howling in laughter. And you know what the story is that Jonah's telling? Jonah, rightly so. We're kind of a little serious and staid when we read the Bible, but Jonah is downright funny. 
right? I mean, here's Jonah, and he's supposed to go... I mean, all the prophets start with a very similar frame of reference. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, go. Next verse, and Jeremiah went and did what God said. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah and said, Isaiah, I want you to go. And the next verse, and Isaiah went and he did it. And then you're into Jonah, what does it say? The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Jonah, go. And he went the other way. Right? It's a completely abnormal. And here he is on a ship with pagan sailors, and they're more righteous than he is, living out their vow to the Lord. And he gets swallowed by a fish, and the fish pukes him up. I mean, it's a hilarious story. He's sitting outside by the end of the book of Jonah. He's uh, the, the the Hebrew term. I don't want to go Hebrew in here, but the Hebrew term for his little plant is a kikayon plant. That's meant to be funny, but we don't really know what the plant is. It's just a funny word. Here he is under his kikayon plant, wailing and crying because God took away his kikayon plant. While you have a whole nation here that God is redeeming, and Jonah can't see up for down. It's it's a it's a great story. But here you have Jonah in Jonah chapter 2 in the belly of a fish on his way down to Sheol land, down to hell land, dead land. And Jonah does what you and I would do if we were caught in the belly of a fish. We're about to go into Shark Week. I'm a completely addicted to it, right? On TV, the Discovery Channel. If I got swallowed by a great white shark, I promise you there would be an enormous amount of prayer going on for the moments that I had left. And that's what Jonah did. He's praying. And the prayer that Jonah's praying is almost carbon copy language from Psalm chapter 30. I was in the depths and you are delivering me. I'm crying out to you for deliverance. And Jonah is on his way down to the realm of the dead. And here is the great irony of God's providence in Jonah's life. And more often than not, our lives as well. What Jonah understood to be the instrument of his death. If you get swallowed by a fish, your time on earth is probably close to an end. And Jonah understands that to be true. But what Jonah did not know is that what he thought was the means of his death, God was using as the very instrument of his salvation. Blech, right? Pukes him up. And now he's he's alive. And you know what Jonah says at the end of Jonah chapter 2 in a psalm that's born right out of Psalm 30 language? He praises. That's all he can do. Salvation belongs to you. What's your reaction to the life-giving grace of God? What's my reaction? To praise? To sing? Hearts that are filled with gratitude for the life-giving grace of God, overflow with praise and thanksgiving. I um, I came off of a week uh, two weeks ago at Sanford. They do this every summer, and I don't, I don't get to do it every summer, but they, um, they, they invite faculty members from across the disciplines to come together for a week just for pure enjoyment and self-betterment, I guess, and to read something from the classic... Um, world of uh, of Western literature. We did Cicero a couple years ago. This past uh, couple weeks, we read through the entirety of, of Dante's Divine Comedy, um, which was uh, quite a ride, to be honest with you. I hadn't done that before, and I can't say I understand half of what I read, but it was a profound experience. And one of the things that stood out to me as you see Dante moving from the realm of the dead, the inferno, into the purgatorio, and then into actual heaven itself, is the progression of music. I was with a music colleague from the music department at Sanford during this, and he pointed that out in a way that I found very penetrative in his analysis, and that is, have you noticed any music in the inferno? Any singing down there? Not a song. 
Not even a dirge. Not a chord. Nothing. But as you move up and go into the purgatorio, and I'm Protestant enough to where my hackles are up on that, but you move into the purgatorio and then you move into the paradiso and once you're there, the music becomes so profound that Dante's language cannot express what it is that he's hearing. The chord structures, the melodic lines, they're too much. It's music. It's praise. Heaven is a world of praise. Heaven is a world of singing. How do we respond to the grace of God in this world and in the next? We sing. To sing and to praise our God for His saving kindness does two things to you and to me. One, when we sing and praise God with hearts of gratitude, we enter into our eternal identity and actually participate in eternity here and now. And number two, when we praise and sing, we are our most authentically human. Because for the psalmist, to live is to praise, and to praise is to live. Now, surely Isaac Watts was right when he said, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. Well, in conclusion, I'm landing the plane. We do ourselves a great disservice as Christians if we do not believe in hope and God's healing power in this world. If we do not believe that God, even now, can in His mercy take things that seem dead to our sensibilities and breathe life into them, like Jairus' daughter eating the falafel. Maybe you've seen it with your own eyes. I saw it in my own eyes. Marriages, for example, that seemed a million miles away from healing. Now vows being rehearsed for the second time. Or released from addiction, etc. But we also know, don't we, that this world is not heaven yet. Sin and suffering can't be avoided. Sometimes daughters don't get raised from the dead. Sometimes addictions aren't overcome. And on a much more basic level, though we are righteous by God's pardoning grace, your status and my status as a sinner will never change on this side of Jordan's stormy banks. So while God can and does heal in this world, and while we pray, and while we groan, and while we hope for such relational and personal and physical healing, and while the only response to those healing activities is praise and thanksgiving too, while, 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 we know that the greatest healing awaits us. The psalmist said rejoicing comes in the morning. Can the dust praise you? The psalmist asked. Don't let me go down to the grave. Don't let me be left there. Why? I can't praise you in the realm of the dead. The gospel good news is that the psalmist's prayer has been answered and is being answered in spades. Jesus goes to Sheol for you. He goes to hell for you. He's led captivity captive. He's conquered sin and death and the devil. And He reigns victorious now. So we will have to go to the cemetery now and then. And we're going to still have to go to the belly of the fish every once in a while. But the forward-looking hope of the psalmist and the Scriptures is to look to the final day when on the far side of death's grip we stand together in perpetual praise and singing to our God who redeemed us. Can you get a picture of that? All of us together, redeemed, dripping wet, 
Because we're just standing outside the pool where we've been saved from. And what are we doing together? We're singing. And when we sing, it's going to sound something like this. I will exalt you, O Lord, because you've lifted me up and not let my enemies triumph over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you restored me to health. You brought me up, O Lord, from the dead. You restored my life as I was going down to the grave. Amen.